Hey there, OCD family community. A new year is just around the corner, and I'm excited to close out a final chapter of 2022 with another episode honoring one of our OCD family members, Allie Garza, as she shares about her journey with OCD. So here, have a seat. We have a chair just for you because you're going to love our protagonist, and I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All right, folks. So first off, It's the end of the year, the last Friday of 2022, and wow, this year has been a doozy. But I'm so incredibly grateful because it was a little over a year ago that this podcast, this community, was just a thought in my mind. And as we talked about during the past few months, thoughts are powerful. They can be really immersive and creative. And as much as they can be haunting or intrusive from an ERP model or obsessional and inferentially confusing from an ICBT standpoint, they can also be pretty awesome and inspiring. And that, that's what this thought, this community has been for me. I started this podcast a mere few months ago because I wanted to create a community of support and resources for you, family. But I'm finding that you all are teaching me so much too. And it's just been an invaluable journey that has taught me so much. So thank you. Seriously. Thank you, family. You're the best. And I say that with the utmost sincerity. Also, like any good fam, y'all have been so caring to check in on my little family during the weather nonsense that has impacted so many in the U.S. this past week. Flight cancellations and people getting stuck has been a real reality. We rebooked a canceled flight, drove five and a half hours for a trip that should have taken about two, with little to no visibility, just to walk into the airport with our flight's cabin doors closing. Oh, I was able to buy five one-way tickets from another airline ticket counter, Which, I have to be honest, it was a little bit surreal for me because I was just watching an old rerun of a show where one of the characters runs in and buys a ticket from the desk agent at the airport. And I was like, nobody does that anymore. Like, I don't even know how often that happened back in the day, but especially with smartphones, nobody does that. But I did it. So I will definitely get to work on getting this foot out of my mouth as soon as this episode posts. (laughs) But seriously, it was crazy. Our plane was a flight that was already multiple hours delayed, thankfully for us, otherwise we would not have gotten out of there. And right as we were about to board, we had to switch planes with the plane that was at the gate next to us because they were having mechanical problems 
that could only be worked on in the destination city where like the gate next to us was going. So we had to switch planes and imagine, imagine being the person that's like, oh, so I'm getting on the jinky plane because it needs to go be fixed. That's that's heartwarming. But we had to switch planes with that plane at the next door gate. And man, by the time we actually loaded, the water lines had frozen over. So they made an announcement over like the PA, over the speaker saying there would be no lavatory service or water for tea, coffee, what have you. And I was just like, have you ever boarded a flight, especially in the U.S., where there's no working bathrooms? Oh, my gosh. And then when we boarded, the electrical went out to a chorus of collective gasps as everyone cringed at the thought that we were going to be grounded and stuck again. (laughs) I mean, I was channeling my five senses, common sense reality, and folks, it wasn't looking good. (laughs) But the electrical popped back on. And while we almost left with our bags headed to Denver and Denver's bags headed to Orlando, The wise airline workers caught their mishap right before takeoff. So at this point, it was tempting to consider a paper airplane had a better chance of making it to our final destination than we did. But hey, we did. We made it. And by 3 a.m., we stumbled into my in-law's house and face-planted into bed. I mean, it was an eventful travel through sub-zero temps and wind chill that could just rip your face right off if it had more than two seconds access to it. But we made it. And it was important that we made it. We saw family that we never know if this time will be the last time we can all be together. We played with cousins and siblings. We drank espresso and had wine and ate way too much delicious food. But I know not everyone was so lucky. And that people are still fighting to get to their loved ones that may be for the last time, or home to their families, or returning to work, or not being able to spring for the continued hotel bills and travel costs that are adding up. Some are driving thousands of miles across the country because their flights were canceled and after five hours on hold with the airline, only to continue to be met with a ringing phone. It's just been tough. So we are not taking our situation without immense gratitude and hope for others to safely make it to their final destinations as well. If anything else, the good, the bad, and the ugly experiences like this past week create impactful stories. And today, we are being welcomed into another story. A journey of another lived experience warrior in Ali Garza. This is a two-part episode where Allie really takes us on a journey from just living her life to feeling imprisoned by the terror OCD absorbed her in, to engaging in treatment and coming out the other side a coffee-drinking, road-sharing, spice-eating woman. She candidly bears all, helping us understand the often subtle, sneaky nature of OCD, which led to needing a higher level of care. As a clinician, I often get asked, where is that line between outpatient, intensive outpatient, residential, or inpatient even? And while my answer will always be that it depends on the person and their ability to function in that given season, I think Allie's perspective is a very helpful example that certainly is relatable and is courageously transparent. 
and it is our gift to receive. So join us as Allie shares a bit more about herself and guides us through the perils that well led to some of her darkest hours also led to her seeing glimpses of the light. So my name is Allie. I'm a social worker in Portland, Oregon. I'm originally from Canada, but I grew up in the Boulder, Colorado area and then popped around for my education for three different schools for my bachelor's, so I got through it. One way or another, I was gonna. You get to check that box. It doesn't matter how long. Exactly. Just put it on the LinkedIn. It's on the resume. There it is. It is on the LinkedIn because I happen to be looking at her LinkedIn. So verified. There we go. And then, yeah, I went out to Seattle, got my master's in social work. And while I was there, met my husband and ended up down in Portland after where I worked for Youthline, which is the crisis line specifically for teenagers. And then after... Basically, towards the end of my master's, my OCD just absolutely ramped up. I had had an OCD diagnosis, like kind of pop in and out of my psychological picture of like my mental health, mm-hmm. like yeah. for years. Sure. But just like the fact that I had that on my chart, I never actually heard of or received evidence-based treatments of ERP. So it didn't really, it was like nominal, but it, it had no kind of weight behind it because probably mm-hmm. because the practitioners you were working with may have been dynamic, but weren't mm-hmm. educated on it. And so you're saying about the time you were in your master's work is where it was really starting to intensify? Yep. Towards the end of my master's, especially the last six months, it was intense, especially with the themes around health. Okay. Navigating things with hard, like that was probably my heaviest hitter, as I like to call it, especially through my bachelor's. But then I know through the start of COVID and some mysterious health stuff that I was legitimately dealing with came this beast of health OCD. Basically, by the time I was wrapping up my master's, like I was writing my essays with vomit bags around me I was having to like take like seven showers a day just trying to calm my nervous my, mm-hmm. it was like I was taking these things also like you know like de-escalation like the tip skill where it's like temperature intense exercise these things I was doing that like around the clock mm-hmm. so, like okay I'm gonna splash cold water on my face I'm gonna do jumping jacks I'm gonna do this breathing thing and then do this but I was doing that like 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So another tip about tip then is that there you can tip too much. <laughs> right over the edge. So I discovered. And yeah. So I had no concept of, I had never heard of ERP. Mm-hmm. I was working in the field at a master's level. I was months away from getting my master's and had never heard of it, which is Sad. astounding. Yeah. Really- you know, what I will say, and if you think about kind of like general practitioners in medicine, whether it's a pediatrician or family doctor, they have to know a lot, Mm -hmm. but they know a little about a lot. And Mm -hmm. and some things they know a lot, a lot about more kind of common run-of-the-mill viruses and and infection treatment and things like that. And I'm sure there's more to it. So doctors, forgive me if I'm reducing it down too simplistically. But what I will say is, when you look at the diagnostic manual, and they like to revise it and change it just when you're getting real comfortable with it, but 
when you look at that, there are a lot of diagnoses. And so, yes, it's, again, knowing a lot about a lot of things. And there's some things that don't come up as frequently. I'm finding that OCD is so much more common and it takes so long for people to even understand that they're dealing with OCD that it's often underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed as an anxiety disorder, as depression, as a personality disorder. And while you can have different things co-occurring along with that, there really is a lack of knowledge at the master's level. And so that's what you're speaking to because you were dealing with it in real time Well, getting your master's in social work, which even though master's in social work can do more than just clinical treatment, they can do linkage, they can do so many different things. You were in school at a master's level getting education and OCD is sometimes reduced to a slide in a psychopathology course. So I think that's a really good point. So you were you were experiencing the height of health anxiety, which I think is going to be so important for us to talk about. A lot of people don't think of that or hypochondria or anything even related to OCD. So I, I am really excited to explore that more. And you were mentioning whether through your bachelor's and I'm going to guess even younger, having some of these harm-based themes, which can sometimes coincide with our health themes, but not always. So this is amazing that you're going to just honor us with telling us more about your story. Why don't we start, where, where would you like to start in terms of kind of talking about harm and health? Like what? What feels like a good start for you? Um, I think probably my big, like, when OCD just absolutely smacked me across the face was in 2016. Actually, coincidentally, as I was wrapping up my bachelor's, maybe this is a thing with higher ed and coming to the end. Maybe. Well, and I will just know, just thinking at least here, at least here in the States, there was a little bit of a tension in the climate in 2016 so i would just throw that out there as well i'm sure that was a that's a hard time to also be experiencing stress because the country was pretty amped up but yeah that's that sounds great so in 2016 you're wrapping up your bachelor's and Mm -hmm. what were you finding during that time yeah so basically during that summer i was all set to be i was beginning my career working in youth ministry So I was all set as far as signed up and fundraising my salary. And I went out to work at a summer camp in Europe. Mm -hmm. So um, how that came to be. Um, Sounds amazing. (laughs) You're like, it could have been. Yeah, right. There's always time to redeem that and go back and be like, hey, I'm going to have some value driven experiences this trip. Right. I'm going to go back to Scotland, but like without... The children that I manage, you know, like without yeah. experience. I'm just going to go on a, a trip. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So when I went out there, I all now, like, I think there was just so many natural stressors of like adjusting to jet lag. I also, I lost my bag. I had no clothes. I was a plus size person in the foothills of Scotland. Do you know what plus size clothing options in the foothills of Scotland look like? I'm going to guess there was like a pretty nice kilt that no i would have been soaked like i would have been thrilled if i had a kilt or two yeah because i mean (laughs) yeah that's and maybe that's a stereotype tell me tell us what 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 were your options there nothing 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 
So the problem started in Scotland when she was walking around naked. No, just kidding. Practical. What I do for a kill right now, people. Okay. I don't know what it was, but they're just basically all the stress of being alone. I think I was 21, maybe 20, you know, embarking on this. I don't know. All these factors, basically. I just got severely depressed. I just, my mood just wanted. Basically, I decided to cut my time short because my mental health was not doing so hot. Mm-hmm. I went back to the States. And when I got back, like the next day, I was driving down the road in Boulder, Colorado mm-hmm. with a friend. And suddenly out of nowhere, like an absolute pile of bricks, just I just ran into it in my head, like had these intrusive thoughts of what if you swerve right now? Mm-hmm. There was no essence of suicidal ideation. It was simply like this. Well, almost, and you know, coming from a Christian background, it almost felt like a demonic spirit is mm-hmm. what my fear was latched onto. Mm-hmm. Of like, what if you swear? What if you swear? Are you going to swear? Do you want to swear? Mm-hmm. It scared the absolute shit out of me. Absolutely. I mean, I, well, as if it was about to happen. And basically that moment triggered, I never had that thought before. And I have dealt with intrusive thoughts around driving ever since. It's mm. very doomsday ass, but it's also like I managed. Yes, you managed it. Actually, I think it sounds, which just maybe just tells you how much fun I have on an average day. That sounds pretty relatable and normal. I think there's a lot of people that have had intrusive thoughts, especially related to driving or an impulsive, kind of fearful, almost panic inducing thought that really, really can stop you in your tracks and go what why would I think that and I think if you even if you've dealt with intrusive thoughts kind of the way OCD can switch it up sometimes it can really catch you off guard and that is really really hard so you were in the car you had this really intrusive thought did you end up pulling over what did you end up doing yep so also had zero clue at this point like that it was OCD. Right. I had these thoughts like this. One of my favorites, my OCD long for the years, is like, oh, Ali, let's go to, oh, a Christian wedding and have the intrusive thought of what if you yell penis right now? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be absolutely fantastic? If I fantastic, I mean, absolutely terrible and life-ending. Right. And I didn't know it was OCD for years. Yeah. So you can see that how, and we've talked about scrupulosity on the podcast. We've also talked about relationship OCD, which can interfere and overlap with your relationship with your higher power, with your God. And so having that fear of what if I say something, you run across this a lot. And whether it's with kind of PKs and MKs, which would be preachers, kids, missionary kids, that's a that's lingo for you guys. You can like drop something like I know MK. It's not just Magic Kingdom at Disney, but it's also that Um, I'm showing my reference point. But also just realizing that that can be really prevalent and there feels like I feel like shame is a harsh word. I think there's a knee jerk reaction. Some people are shaming. But I think there's that knee jerk reaction. Like if I am in a certain kind of religious practice and I do this, this is not only an insult or this is taboo, but this would be kind of a a wrong or a sin against your tradition. And 
imagine doing that in a room full of people. You know, they, people always say, if you're nervous giving a speech, imagine everybody in their underwear. Imagine you were in front in your underwear in front of everybody and you're like, hey, it wasn't supposed to be literal, but your brain doesn't know and it gets confused. Yeah. So you used to have that one and it would be a little bit scrupulous, but then you started to have these intrusive harm thoughts, which also took on a scrupulous nature because it felt like it was evil from the enemy. Yes. Or an enema. I don't know. It's all shit. Classify it all in the shit category. We'll put the enemy and the enema and all of that. So you had the intrusive thought and you weren't linking it to harm OCD at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, compulsions were a way of life. They were a way of protecting other people from it. Also, like, I mean, that was like a value that I had. I really, I care about other people a lot. Mm-hmm. Sucks to care so much, right? And mm-hmm. so, and I, it was my duty and like my, yeah, it was my duty and my obligation to protect other people. Mm-hmm. Or not be from myself, from harm, from others, uh, from themselves. I mean, that's kind of something that comes up a lot is when I worked in crisis, it's like, Sometimes, you know, when someone is acutely suicidal, like the conversation is, how can we protect you from yourself or mm-hmm. these still happening right now? And so, yeah, I was navigating, you know, these sudden intrusive thoughts around driving. It wasn't only about what if I die on the road. It was what if I, I mean, that was a huge one, like head on collision. Mm-hmm. Like I could not take that risk of putting someone else in a position to either A, die or B, be in grave harm Mm -hmm. because I chose to get in the car that day without absolute certainty Mm -hmm. that I went one else right just a touch of weight on my shoulders just a touch you know if someone were interviewing Superman and it was like do you enjoy your off time from the Daily Planet or whatever that newspaper was it's a weird analogy but you know and then he's like what off time I'm actually like saving the world and all of that it's just a touch of like you know would love to just be able to sit back and relax But yeah, I mean, absolutely. And again, I think so many people are going to be able to relate to this. So many family members, spouses, partners, best friends, roommates listening that are going to go, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I feel. It's kind of hard for me to get it, but it's what I hear. So where did you, what happened from there? So I'm going to imagine you weren't going on joy rides very often. Oh, Actually, well, the opposite. Okay, so here's the thing is that I am extraordinarily like stubborn and like I'm the type of person that like, I'm, like I am going to be in youth ministry, kids, these middle schoolers, I love them and this is my life, this is my passion. And so I'm going to figure out how to get through this as fast, ripping off like a band-aid. Is. Mm-hmm. So I was waking up in the middle of the night, like three o'clock in the morning. I was waking up when I knew there'd be almost no one on the road. And I was forcing myself to basically, so as I'm like sweating, like crying, mm-hmm. just absolutely in terror, drive around the neighborhood, which was not helpful because unknowingly, unknowingly, uh-huh. I was doing compulsions mm-hmm. the entire time. Mm-hmm. Basically, I was like, okay, I'm going to drive. I'm going to take on these, like have me, I'm going to make sure these thoughts don't come up. I'm mm-hmm. going Pray. I'm going to listen to this one podcast repeatedly on a loop for hours. I was driving from three o'clock until basically the sun came up sometimes, just in absolute psychological terror for weeks. Yeah. And and then like every time an intrusive thought came up, but what if you swerve? 
and be like, no, I'm not. It was the absolutely beach ball. Like when they talk about the beach ball underwater, mm-hmm. it was hours of me reshuffing the beach ball underwater and wondering why I just kept smacking myself back in the face. That is, uh, that is such a great analogy because of the visual image, but you can, you can think about it through the mechanics of you have a buoyant, you have air in a ball that's buoyant and absolutely with all your efforts tirelessly, you can push it down and sure it can stay under the water, but that is not where it's going to stay because ultimately the properties of it, they're going to float back to the top. And so you were compulsing, but you were also trying to expose yourself. And I think that for anybody in the field or for anybody that's gone through anxiety treatment before, especially if it has had a cognitive behavioral background, you've probably heard of exposure therapy. You've talked about it. And while we use exposure therapy when treating OCD, the response prevention piece is pretty important Mm -hmm. to its efficacy and why it works for OCD. So you were out trying to face your fears, which A for effort, Allie. like, yeah, like for real. I mean, it, it is it is a very, very hard thing to do. I also have lived experience of OCD and I would try and do that as well. And I didn't necessarily understand why it wasn't decreasing as much as I need to just accept that maybe my expectation that it could decrease beyond this would be unrealistic. And that's OK. I can deal with it. I guess, because you have no choice. And, but absolutely, the exposure piece can privy you to your fears, but without resisting those compulsions. And as you noted, you were compulsing. You had certain things you were listening to, you were repeating, you probably were checking as you're driving to make sure you didn't hit somebody. You were repeating that over and over again. Absolutely. So as you were getting through that, I'm sure you were not getting a lot of solid sleep if you were doing that during your nighttime hours. Nope, no. And, you know, and then as OCD does, you know, I'm driving, the thoughts popping in. I'm going, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. It's not who you are. It's not who you are. You're good. And then, of course, in true OCD fashion, it's just popping up to other things. Uh-huh. Rapid. And so in my brain, my blessed little 20 year, 21 year old brain, I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? To really, you know, give the middle finger to OCD. I'm going to go on a girl's trip with my sister to San Francisco. Yeah, you are. <laughs> and Jesus Christ, Allie. Like, okay, you've got harm OCD. Mm-hmm. Where should you go? Mm. Oh, how about Golden Gate Bridge? Oh, yeah. On an ERP therapist level. I'm like, yeah, girl. But also, like, I'm just doing ERP. I was like, right. I'm convinced that if I'm just in a different city, OCD is going to just go away. That would be amazing if that were true. But as you're noting, and, and for anybody that might be like, why is that ironic? Because uh, being on a bridge, when you have harm-based themes or fears of what if I impulsively do something that harms somebody else, not just for yourself, being on a high up bridge where if you fell from it, you die, that's pretty intense. And absolutely, that is a tourist attraction, if you will. And you can walk there are sidewalks on, I think, both sides of the bridge where you can walk along it. So I would not know because I'm sure as hell not going across that bridge. That's OK. Maybe next year, the OCD conference is in SF next year. Maybe that bridge will happen. Oh, absolutely. That is on the agenda. Me and my friends from OCD treatment from McLean in Houston, when I eventually did get treatment in 2021, mm-hmm. we're going to be there. We were at the Denver one. So I'm like, yes, I'm going to need my Golden Gate Bridge pick. 
because yes also like basically after this driving stuff and the girls trip to you know like eat pray love my way all of ocd um, you didn't find some traveling pants and a fresh mindset <laughs> no not quite just a light load of terror yeah. but fun flirty carefree yeah that was yeah. the hope yeah yeah i went to san francisco driving in ubers sitting on my hands another ocd classic with harm because of course if you're in a car you have the opportunity you could open the door and throw yourself out sure or grab oh. the steering wheel oh god yeah, yeah. right yeah. So sitting on my hands, repeating things repetitively in my head everywhere we go. That was subtle. I think I was in my head. I would never know. The crazy thing about OCD is that when I'm dealing with this stuff, still to this day, no one knows. I would be well, driving down. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Sitting on your hands, doing a lot of the compulsions because there's a lot of shame around and fear around what if I dot, dot, dot. A lot of people... You know, when you get to the point of going, yeah, so I have OCD, they're like, you do? Because I haven't seen you, like, do this thing with the locking and going through all the soap. And it's like, oh, I just, you know, think about throwing myself on the highway. He, he, like, right? no. Yeah, go big or go high, right? You know, <laughs> like, Allie, come on. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely, from there on the trip, absolutely snowballed. And, oh, gosh, escalator is another option for me to throw myself over. Mm-hmm. And that, get this, so that at the tail end of the trip, my sister lost her heart. We were going to the airport. I was like, finally, my last sitting on my hands Uber ride. And then we get there and the queen has forgot her license at the hotel. Oh, no. I'm having a full-blown panic attack. Uh-huh. And thanks to her medication bottles having her name on them, TSA will let us through. Wow. Right. Through the magic of medication, somehow right. something happened. <laughs> SSRIs. TSA is going to be like, damn it, Wolfson, who was working that day? Fired. <laughs> Look at that anxious bitch. Someone let her through, for the love of God. They're no. like, we don't want a deal. Come on. Go ahead. Oh. No. But thankfully, my sister had some items that have her name uh-huh. on them. Yeah. Thanks, and sis. Early for nothing for a whole phone pajama. Uh, well, mo- mostly thanks to CD because then. Oh, like Car- Carly a little bit. I don't right. know you, Carly, but maybe 12%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll give her a touch more than that. Maybe 25. Okay. So that's a sister for you. Like a sibling. And she's like, I'm shooting the shit and keeping it real. Okay. Right. You're way 5% of my trauma. on that incident. So how hard is it? You got to just have your license. It's the one that you can lose anything. You can lose anything. Just not her ID. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, going to TSA. And suddenly OCD decides to hit me with a new one because it's just feeling, you know, a little frisky that day. And it's like, what if you yell bomb right now? Mm. They, they, you know, yeah. They, yeah. Not fans of that at TSA. Not quite. Not quite. And so, you know, of course, I'm picturing myself doing that, being tackled, being put on a watch list. My face is on CNN. That's fun. Like it always, so much of my things with harm always ends with my face on CNN. I mean, Wolf Blitzer or Anderson Cooper, who's who's covering it? It's just different. It depends. <laughs> I swear, if Anderson Cooper ever referred to me as like America's biggest threat, I don't know how I'd recover from that. I love him so dearly. Well, if he did, 
Again, right. thoughts, even if we hear it come out of somebody else's mouth, it doesn't define us. Our thoughts don't define us or whatnot. But maybe they define you a little bit. I mean, maybe you are. I think Anderson Cooper's blessing on my presence is a pretty big one. But <laughs> I guess hypothetically, I would handle it. Yes. <laughs> she says, <laughs> yes. Maybe after the bridge, you'll be like, you know what? I could handle Anderson. You know, <laughs> Right, right. I can walk over the Golden Gate Bridge. I can handle the possibility of Anderson Cooper not thinking the absolute world of me in a hypothetical world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, he hasn't talked with you or visited bad bitches. Bad anxiety. Yes, (laughs) but, you know, (laughs) or maybe yes. I wish. I think he could be a bad bitch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sassy little silver fox that he is. Okay. So you were being tackled and going down at the airport, which would be great practice for rugby if you wanted to get into a rugby team, but not ideal. And you were going to be blasted on CNN. Right. And so, of course, what would make that even worse? Oh, being actually in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, in a trapped in a plane. Yeah. Oh, like what if also while you're trapped in that plane and you're having that thought, what if you ran over to the plane door and tried to open it and throw yourself out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they open pretty easily, those doors. They're just like... Hey. Now, in my deep searching, which, of course, I was probably searching on the plane. How hard it, can you open a plane door while it's... I've looked, searched that too many times. Like, uh-huh. haven't landed on a great answer. But right, airflow, apparently it's not going pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. But I like it because you're strong. So you could just whip that shit right open and be like, suckas, yeah be like a whole mood <laughs> be alone yeah the power the adrenaline yes yeah. yes the cortisol is pumping you're like boom yeah you know i and now i'm like genuinely curious i'm like oh gosh could, like i forget where i landed that research but you know what i'm gonna leave uncertainty with one well good for you so you get back but you're going through the air that's probably very anxiety producing you're already feeling very anxious from the whole ride to the airport, being in SF, having your sister forget her ID. Thanks, Carly. So what happened next? Sweating profusely, like through my clothes. I am soaked through with sweat on the plane. I have the music for whenever I'm listening to blast so loud, I'm probably giving myself eardrum damage and I am physically shaking the entire time. Mm-hmm. And with every thought popping in, I'm going, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been some things put up I've been reading about other people that I've talked about on Instagram, my source of all knowledge, uh-huh. about OCD being traumatic. And let me tell you, that was fucking traumatic. Yeah. I genuinely thought, I mean, I genuinely prayed to God that I was not going to do it. There was nothing I wanted less to do on that earth in that time than to any of the things popping in my head. Right. And I was absolutely terrorized looking at the people around me going, if I yell right now, I'm going to traumatize all these people and my life is ruined. And I will do anything I possibly can to make sure that's not going to happen. That's right. my, on me. Right. No one else stop me from yelling or doing this. In fact, I would have been so relieved. I would have been just overjoyed if someone would have agreed to like freaking put something, duct tape my mouth closed and hold me, mm-hmm. strain me. I would have, the relief that that concept would have brought, I would take it yeah. easily. Yeah, it's a terrifying place to be. I don't know many people that can really, unless you have OCD, that can really understand mm-hmm. that feeling, that feeling of like the terror when the intrusive thought can hit and it feels like you're being struck by lightning of like, oh, like, oh my God, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in like actually being treated with OCD, I was able to tease apart more. That's me assigning meaning to it. Right. So some of it is so like the shock factor and the anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's so kind of like in, what do you call it? Like their hands and hands. Yeah. Can I ask, Allie, at the time, because you said you had had an OCD diagnosis, but didn't really know what those letters meant. It hadn't really ever addressed it in treatment. Had you tried any medication up to that point or were you completely unmedicated when all of this was happening? So at that point, actually, you'll love this. I went to my psychiatrist and pitched to him. I was like, hey, I've been doing a deep dive in the web. Have you heard of a thing called Puro? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I do love that. We'll talk about that in a minute, but please, I don't want to interrupt, but I do love it. I, again, that OCD was not my chart at this point. The last time it had been on the radar before the driving, this is all also, may I note that all this is in one month's time mm-hmm. on the driving to this. Uh, I was like, hey, what do you think about this hero thing? He's like, yeah, I can see it. And I was like, right. Oh, me can I can too. You're like, I can too. Here's all the research. <laughs> I'll say, uh, me too. I started as a, a pure. <laughs> Once I realized OCD might be there, I was like, but it's probably pure. We'll get to that in a moment, folks. We'll talk about that in a moment. But but yeah, so you talked with your psychiatrist and, and what was the outcome of that? Like, okay, here's some Zoloft. You got this, kiddo. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus, I needed so much more of that. T- I needed some freaking extra support right but that that was that's where it landed was I was doing that and the therapist I was seeing at the time she was fresh out of grad school definitely never heard of OCD and I was it was clear I was above her pay grade mm-hmm. and she's I really don't know what to say to this like so I'm terrified you're gonna dr- swerve on the highway and I'm like right uh-huh. um, and somehow <laughs> she's um, like that's I unusual <laughs> right <laughs> what do I do with this they didn't cover that <laughs> right <laughs> I should have, yeah, but they should have. I don't blame her. Looking back, I'm like, bless you for sitting with me as I sobbed hysterically and me being like, what do I should do? And having the humility. Actually, that's the thing is that a lot of these providers just are not willing to have the humility or flex the muscle of, I actually don't know what to do with this. And right. I'm going to out. Yes. That is a real skill to, to say and know what you don't know. Absolutely. Yes. Because it's not helping anybody, yourself or the client. And this goes for a myriad of professions, but it's actually a real strength because you can neither learn together. It doesn't even necessarily mean the fit won't be good in the end. If you have mm-hmm. a good rapport and can learn together. But at the same time, if you don't know, I mean, especially when it comes to OCD, it can do a lot more damage to lean into some talk therapy where you're just like really paying for some compulsions there. Or thought stopping so I can void it and all the things. Oh, man. If someone ever tells me again to picture a stop sign when an OCD thought pops in, I'm like, no. You're like, I pictured it and then I like pulled it out with my with my human, extra human strength and like slit somebody with it. The one that's opening the plane door is also pulling stop signs out of the ground. Did you not get my history of the Herculean like strength? Yeah. Okay. So absolutely. So she, how long were were you with that provider? I was probably like three years at this point and then got referred instead to an EMDR provider. Ooh. Yeah. How do you think that one went? I mean, so, so for people that aren't familiar with EMDR, it's a trauma-based 
treatment, all the EMDR folks, if you're listening, hi, welcome. I mean, come learn with us. But hey, EMDR therapist. Yeah. No hate. Yeah. Yeah. No hate. But what I will say is EMDR has been, I was first introduced to EMDR when I was getting ready for the licensing exams because I lived in California and I had some peers and colleagues that were amazing, wonderful people that were just really struggling with the test anxiety with the exam because it was an insane, a couple of insane really tests to try and get licensed in the state of California. And so one of the, one of my colleagues who was in my cohort in graduate school was like, you should try EMDR. And I believe, and again, don't shoot me, or maybe shoot me a little bit, but with EMDR is, you know, you're you're working with kind of neurofeedback, you're working on kind of some deep, going into kind of unconscious trauma. And a lot of people that have trauma histories and have sought treatment for trauma or specific phobia have touted it to be very, very helpful. So EMDR is, and there's different ways you could do it. You could use a pen, you could use lights. There's lots of different kind of modalities that can be incorporated, but it's not hypnotism, but it has to do something with, I don't know, watch the line. We're going to, we have safe words, which in OCD, we call it compulsion and, you know, whatnot. So you went to EMDR, you got hooked up or did, did some of the hand things, which, what version did you have of EMDR? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think I had the buzzing things in my hands. Buzzers. Which let me tell you, when you're dealing with driving anxiety and you have a hyperfixation on the feeling of your hand on the steering wheel. Or a stick shift or yeah, yeah. That's all fan favorites. And so it was not a good fan. 10 out of 10 do not recommend. Although an exposure, I suppose. That you were, at this point. Yeah, yeah. at this point. <laughs> the more you know. So you went to EMDR to work on your fear of murdering the world. Right, correct. Gasoline to dumpster fire. Uh-huh. Um, I would just get, you know, I really, looking back, I should just have called these reassurance sessions of me just saying, am I a bad person? And people telling me no over and over again on repeat. Mm-hmm. She and is, that, she's a bad, she's a bad bitch. So a bad bitch. you are a bad bitch. <laughs> like, they just didn't even know. You're like, I'm branded now. Like, I could ask so desperately want to be a good bitch, but you know, now I know better. Now I know. <laughs> so, oh, get this. So then. Bring it, Allie. We're here for it, aren't we, when, people? It's okay. You're with family. You're with family. It's the OCD family. The fam. It's totally the fam. Uh, yeah. So doing my ODR, I'm getting ready to go take these little nuggets of joy, my middle schoolers, to summer camp. And there was no way. In heaven or hell, I was going to miss that. No way. I freaking love those girls. Good um, for you. Good for you. We need people that are passionate about middle schoolers because it's a, it's a tough age for a lot of people. So it's a niche. It's a niche. I'll get it. It is a niche. So then I'm going just, I am OCD. I mean, we've covered lots of things that's popping up on. And this is all like, you know, a few days between these things happening. Sure. Rapid fire. And so I get to the summer camp. All the staff from my city, they know me very well. I've been in this ministry for 10 years at this uh-huh. point. Yeah. I'm like the poster child, honestly, because I, you know, a kid from an atheist family, but I was part of the family of this youth ministry. I mean, that sounds like a story in and of itself. Oh, it's like true. You're a little, little C.S. Lewis here, kind of just like showing off here. I, that's amazing. But what I will say is 
Yes, I would imagine there was a spotlight on you because you're you're the poster testimony for someone going from there's no existence to I'm passionate and I'm going to serve and do youth ministry. So there you are. You're at summer camp. Where was the summer camp? Was it in? Uh, Colorado. It was in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. A little poster child of atheist family kid. Also extraordinarily mentally ill, but then also like a natural performer, overachiever, like all these kind of layers. So she's saying she was normal. Okay. All right. Fully high function. Yeah. No. I mean, I think a lot of people can relate. Took these kids to camp and all the staff from my city, because there's some different hierarchy levels in this Mm -hmm. ministry. All the staff from the city, they've known me for years. They know my OCD. They know I've been having one hell of a time. And there's no question, I mean, for the love of God, I've went from being a kid to, you know, a high school kid in this ministry to being a leader. And now they've hired me on staff. Mm -hmm. So you would think if they would think there was, you know, I wasn't a good fit for youth ministry, I probably wouldn't have been hired. Probably. Um, I've been putting in. Right. Perhaps. Perhaps. Well, a little uncertainty. (laughs) Because I was putting in, you know, hours and hours, probably 20, 30 hours a week of like unpaid labor. I feel like, which is ministry. If you look at dictionary definition, ministry, unpaid work, but you're supposed to do it. But what I would say is, uh, I think she's given us a case, you guys, for why she might have been a good enough person. So we, so we might think, you know, to. uh, These were my reassurance things that uh were going and at rapid fire. Uh Uh-huh. So then, in true OCD nature, I decided to start off the camp week with a light confession slash accommodation ask to the camp manager, who was mm-hmm. kind of him, but mm-hmm. he was like a higher up in this ministry, yeah. didn't have any contact with me. We're going straight to the core. We're going straight yes. to the core. Intense. I like it. The VP of the, gosh, well, I don't know, the region, the Midwest. Anyway, and say, hey. I have OCD. I have these intru- thoughts pop in my head that I'm going to yell the word bomb, that, you know, I'm scared of doing the, Larry call it, the ropes course thing. I'm scared I'm going to, like, I'm just scared all the time. If I need to step out of the room, I just want to make sure that's okay. I'm, I'm, you guys can't see it, but I'm nodding my head no, because I'm, I'm, I am ready for the, you know, you know, when they say, if you're going to be in a car accident, don't test up before you right. There's about to be a car accident. I have a feeling because I can anticipate what your what the response to this was. But okay, I'm I'm here for it. Go go for it, Ellie. What would yeah middle aged man in youth ministry with no idea of OCD or actually mental illness? What would they say? Oh, they would say to me, "Oh, I'm concerned that you're a danger to children. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be here. I don't know why you're here, and you because if you are having these thoughts." you're going to need to go home. So we're going to have to find someone to drive up to the mountains to pick you up because um, you are unsafe. Man, he should write for Hallmark. I mean, he's on it. I was kind of wondering if you were going to be possessed too. So it's nice yeah. that that wasn't sprinkled in there. But I, yeah, so he completely validated that fear that OCD was building in you, that you are this terrible person that is a danger to people. Get the hell yeah. out of here because you're dangerous and so that had to be extremely extremely disturbing for you that was probably the most traumatizing instant in my life yeah yeah you hear that anderson so the bar is high i can handle it anderson, anderson, if you're out there 
He's out there. Yeah. He's probably at work. Okay. Yeah, but not to make light of it. It is extremely traumatizing, and that is very validating that it would be disturbing. Not because of the nature of the thoughts she was having, but mm-hmm. this, is, this really speaks to the stigma of why people do keep it to themselves. And Allie was talking about earlier when she would sit on her hands. Yeah, because people wouldn't know. And yeah, you wouldn't want people to know because when you do, look at the response. Yeah, you are bad. Yeah, you are terrible. Yeah, you're, it, it might even be worse than you thought. And right. that, is, that is a living hell for people going, it still exists. We can here on earth. It can exist for sure. How long were And that's what I said all through that time. And so basically I was like, call my psychiatrist. Me and him are tight. He knows right. me. He's got call the Cetrolane hookup. So he's like, yeah, what's up, Allie? <laughs> call my therapist. Call my PCP. Call anyone you need to. They'll vouch for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, out of... I was told out of, you know, that he was kind towards me. I was told later on for letting me stay. He was and, kind towards you and they couldn't find staff to fill your spot. So, well, we'll deal with it probably. But, but we'll let you think that this was like, you're on notice and yeah. So I'm only staying for the week. But then when I got home, I sat down by my mentor slash boss and told that I was in a three months probation from mm. ministry where I wasn't allowed to talk to my kids, be in their presence, oh. go to any of the events with the kids until mm. I figured it out. And what I was, had, do you know what the messaging was to the youth you were working with on why you were suddenly off the grid? Yeah. So I was told that I was supposed to tell the kids and their parents. I was very involved in all, with all these families, you know? I've oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I was told that I had to tell them that I was choosing to take a break. And when I told the staff person that I wasn't willing to do that because it was dishonest and that I was being forced to be put on probation because of my OCD. Good for you. I was told back that if that by choosing for me to say that I was exalting myself above God. Wow. And it's like combo of religious drama. Oh my gosh. So you by not lying, which, you know, some people would believe is a religious tenant to tell the truth. You were actually exalting yourself above God. What? Wow. Right. What a crack of shit they were working on. So you were being because they were because you weren't going to go with their lying narrative. Let's just put that out there. You weren't going to go with their lying narrative. And this is the problem, too, part not only the stigma, but also everybody, whether we're talking about mental health, church, whatever. We're all just people. We all have flaws and to have this be the messaging from an organization when already so much of kind of your moral dignity and your scrupulosity is wrapped up in some of these harm and health themes is just it's so it's i'm i'm a little bit speechless which is probably for the best because we can hear more from Allie. all right so they tell you that you're like above god apparently for not lying okay right and so I really tried. Uh, well, I tried the best I can, despite the fact that I was in psychological hell. Sure. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps with my severe debilitating OCD and composed my way through it as I had the driving 
And I think it was like a month or so in, I was so depressed, so hopeless, just absolutely. I was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I need to say, I need to say bye to this youth ministry and to these kids. That was truly my vision for my life was mm-hmm. to work at ministry, mm-hmm. which is, you know, probably problematic in itself, but I didn't see it at the time. And so I told them I can't do this. And also I would like to preface this by saying my entire social circle was this youth ministry. I'm and sure. Like, well, years, every single person, I, it totally engulfed my entire world. So I was really just saying goodbye to like your world, I, my world. Yeah. Because OCD basically led me to being exiled. It's what happened in that particular incident in my life. Because it's a lot of people's worst nightmare, especially with taboo themes. That's why I'm so passionate about talking about it. Because God, I wish so badly back when 21-year-old Allie was going through hell that she would have known. I didn't know anyone else that had OCD. I didn't know anyone that had harm OCD. And I was just trying so hard to hold on to like, I'm going to get through this somehow and somehow it's going to work out where I'm going to find light. But it was not looking so promising back then. Yeah. And I think that's a really dynamic point. It's it is hard to say and there can be a worry. What if this makes people feel worse or hopeless? But the reality is what you're talking about when you're in that space where either you don't even know it's OCD or even if you do, it feels like these intrusive thoughts are drowning you. That even if they say it works for a lot of people, it can work for 70% of people or 65% of people. You're probably part of that percent that is not going to work for your screw up. And the reality is you're not. But there's so much fear speaking about it because when you do, what if people do judge you? And not always are people going to have this kind of response, but sometimes they do. And so it's based on, and I think this is where it gets kind of fuzzy too for OCD is sometimes you can have a fear based on something that's happened. This is a very realistic outcome that could happen. And so, yeah, you're right. It can happen. And it did happen for you. And you can still get out of the bed in the morning. You can still face those fears and know that you're not alone. And that's really powerful. So you went into this, you're now kind of excommunicated from your entire world. So your support network is like in the negatives. And right. and is this about the time you were in grad school or applying? No, nope, I just finished my bachelor's. So I do what any normal person would do. Mm-hmm. I pick up and move my entire life to a different city. And I work in psychiatric residential with children. Oh. Yeah. I'm flirty and carefree. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, never a dull moment. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. So you uh, went and worked in, and that's a, also, again, it's amazing, Ellie, because these populations are very intense. And it's because of the amount of different things these people are facing in their mental illness, not because these people are bad, not because they're wrong. But often there's a high burnout because people working in those facilities don't necessarily understand the disorders that they're working with and the complex kind of cluster between medical and mental health that can make the presentation even harder to cope with. So you went, moved to a new city. Did that work for you, the new city? SF didn't work for the visit, but where was your new city? <laughs> I just went from Boulder to Denver, which okay. is like, Denver. Like, yeah, the next step in the adulthood track. There you okay. go. Moving on up. Yeah. So, oh gosh. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, well, things get better. I mean, I basically had to like reinvent myself, right? I, sure. I mean, uh, like going from my mission being youth ministry to youth mental health, insanely different as far as what I wanted to be doing with mentorship, youth development. Yeah, I was working with the kids in that facility, you know, I think 90% were in the foster care system. Sure. Dealing with basically different layers of like mental illness and behaviors that made it unsafe for them to be in the community replaced with families. Yeah. And with, can I ask you this too? Did you find after kind of leaving that previous chapter, were you able to maintain or keep semblance of faith that worked for you? Or was that like, was it all kind of at that point, you grew up in an atheist family, had gone into this religious experience and relationship, had that trauma. Did you end up going back to atheism, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how. No concept. But like, for some reason, it was very, very easy for me, especially once I actually left the ministry, to be able to just pull apart my spirituality, God all these things from the absolute bullshit and trauma I'd been through. I was like, that's bullshit. This is God. That's amazing. Yeah. But some like, I don't blame people at all. People who go through similar experiences or with religious trauma, spiritual abuse. I have no, like, I don't really understand how, why or how I would want to do that so easily because I would not blame myself 1% at all if I had said, absolutely not. Yep. I don't do any of this. It's so infused. It's impossible to, move forward with it anyway but right. for me very natural to be like I'm leaving and I'm taking God with me because I don't want to be here and deal with this and I deserve better I deserve a life that's actually like you know joy and fulfillment and purpose and not like abuse and being shoved you know I love that so you felt like you got to choose and I I, I love that that is that's amazing so you went into psychiatric illnesses. You were noticing a theme of a lot of kids that have been in trauma. You don't get in foster care if you haven't experienced some kind of neglect or physical or sexual abuse. So 90% of your population is dealing with that. And where did things go from there? Well, I'll just fast forward because it was quite the whirlwind. But I worked there for a while. Then I worked at an elementary school working with kiddos dealing with also trauma and like behavioral difficulties in school. Then I was a caregiver for a while with a person who had mental illness. And then I launched off to Seattle to go to grad school, get my MSW. And basically while I was there, yeah, getting my MSW at UW, then met my husband, Adrian, bless his heart, shout out. Carly gets 25%, he gets zero. Carly, it's still your fault. <laughs> yeah. Lovely reminder in case you forgot. Carly, if you're listening, which you better be listening, your sister is is sharing her soul here. Is it a roast, Carly, or whatever? Yes, show. it's a Carly. It's a Carly. Carly is like, what did I do? Twenty five percent of things, Carly. If you need to go back, right? Also, miraculously, my sister also ended up as a social worker, also working with you, which was just yeah. a surprise because you didn't have social worker parents. Right. Yes. Because even dear therapist, but no, hey, listen, there's a need for all things. There just is. Some. Yes. We're not getting on an EMDR. It's just not great if you have OCD. And there would probably be people that would disagree with that disclaimer. So I just put a disclaimer that I don't speak for all people. But yes, 
I can say it was not a great time in 2016 for Allie Bernard at the time. There, there you go. It was not a good fit for her, y'all. Okay, get off her back. Get off my right. back. Or get on my back and we'll do a chicken fight. Just kidding. Okay, so so she is an EMDR therapist now, but you were working, you were working inpatient, and then you went to Seattle, which is a lovely city as well, and you were at UW, you met your 0% problematic husband. Yes. I'm going to make that his new Instagram bio. There you go. Then there, I was working on my practicum, and I was working for youth line. That's why I was working for the youth crisis line, which Mm -hmm. love, love the youth. I working in residential, I was very equipped with handling a crisis or two. Uh huh. And it came very like crisis has always been one of those things. I don't know if it's like my like actually diagnosed ADHD flare where in the moment I'm very like, like, okay, all these things are happening and what are we going to do? So with OCD, that's nice to be able to take the things that OCD loves to use for evil and uh-huh. use them for good. Yeah. Like, Say, so take that, OCD. You are yes. a pro at living through crisis because OCD is constantly creating a crisis. And so, yes, you were just really putting out there some of the spidey skills that you had honed over the years. Yes, because OCD is always like, and what are we going to do next, right? Now what do we do? I'm like, well... I'm going to try and go ahead and say nothing, but instead I'm going to take this other person's crisis where I actually can do something that's helpful and create a safety plan. Do you ever think it became part of a compulsion in a way, though, to go, you know what, I'm going to create safety plans to prove that I am a good person, OCD. And not to say that that's wrong, but do you think in the beginning, she's like, shit, that was actually me. In a minute, I had a better reframe on that. I could be wrong, I, but I, th- I think that in the beginning, it could feel like I'm going to compensate for this. Not only compensate, because you, you can compensate in easier ways than dealing with yes. suicidal teens. You can pray to service. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, definitely. But at the same time, and where, where I think anything, this goes for anything, it's, it's not that it was bad, but OCD can make it into something bad. And then we can reclaim it and say, actually, it's something for my values and it's good. Mm-hmm. So take that. And it may have never kind of felt like one of those things for you. But I, I think for some people, sometimes it could. And so I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, I discovered when I was in treatment, the safety behavior or the compulsion of staying busy, of talking, of whatever. Because when you are working a 10-hour crisis shift, there isn't a lot of opportunity for you to, like, attend to your OCD. No, I think that makes perfect sense because people are often trying to busy themselves or distract themselves. And again, when we talk about like therapy, if you're not getting OCD therapy, in fact, that will be treated and taught. You know, how can I change the channel and shift the focus from this to that instead? And so, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it makes those excruciating hours that can feel like weeks be less and less when you're busy. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. If you're doing something every given minute of the day that you're conscious, well, then it's the same like beach ball under the water thing of like, yeah, I could have an intrusive thought or I could do a hundred things to not even give it an opportunity to pop in. Yeah. Surprise, it's in your head. So it still can, but it is butt blocking, right? Right. So, right. Pretty good, that one. (laughs) Yeah, yep. So, and, and again, that's taught, that's taught in CBT even, you know, so it, it's a thing for sure. 
So you ended up working these long shifts. You were working with this population and getting your master's. You met your husband. And what happened next for you? Well, then COVID happened. Perfect. Oh, nothing, nothing, right? Like, uh, yeah, just two years of uh, yeah. unknown, which OCD loves some uncertainty, doesn't it? Yeah. It was well. So with COVID starting, and I'm sure it was tricky because you were an essential worker then. And essentially, the cases went up, not just for COVID, but it went up for crisis because people were in shutdown, cut off from resources. Maybe they lost their job. They don't have other eyes or people on them to go, oh, my gosh, I don't know if they're doing okay. People were isolated. And there was probably even how you can intervene in a crisis while mitigating germs, while mitigating like all the different concerns, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I'm sure it was very, very stressful. So what shape did your OCD take in COVID? So then it did not like, yeah, I was waiting for the crisis line at the time. And because it was the calls were answered by youth volunteers. And then if it ever got to the, like I was listening in on all the calls, reading all the texts. And then if it ever got to the point that it needed to be taken over by a clinician, there I was to do that. And it was, I wasn't necessarily concerned any more than the average responsible person about the contamination piece. But instead, my focus got very shifted, like very hooked on basically monitoring my own symptoms. Mm -hmm. Do I have a sore throat? Do I have this? Not necessarily because of concerns about myself, but because I'm working at this crisis line. Right. And you could harm somebody else. You could, they could die. This is, I could give it to this kid. This kid that's doing this volunteer work, it could spread amongst the, like all the teens. And then the crisis line is out. Like that is that like an every day of the year that crisis line is running. And then, yeah, I could give it to this kid whose parents are entrusting us to let their kid come in in the middle of the plague to answer these crisis calls. And yeah, that was not a good time either as far as like managing not only that response, this hyper responsibility of like, I am in charge, like I is up to me to protect these other people from myself from giving them COVID, but then also managing crisis calls in the middle of that. Right. And you can see how sometimes people go, but what's, where's that line between a normative fear and it's now an obsessional fear. And if Uh you think back to the beginning of those times, if anything else, the narrative was driven was an actuality that if you didn't take steps to mitigate the spread of COVID and it was a super contagious thing that we didn't have a cure for that could kill a bunch of people, then you could be contributing to that. And so for OCD folks that are especially already worried about spreading um, and not necessarily, again, I mean, there's it, it's interesting because not everyone in the OCD community had that same thought about contamination or COVID. But mm-hmm. if you have that concern that you're going to hurt somebody at the core and this this could pass something along that could impact that that teen, that teen's parents, that teen's grandparents, that sense of responsibility was being reminded quite often. And so I'm sure kind of surveying your own responses and starting to really respond to your physiological cues <laughs> felt critical. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so... I also then did get like a month or two into COVID, got very sick with something that wasn't COVID. Trust me, they knew me well at the PCR drive-thru. I was a regular. 
I had some funny conversations like this one time, probably my freaking 10th COVID test of the month. And this was later into the pandemic and the swabber guy. And he's like, hey, got any fun plans this weekend? I'm like, what do you mean, sir? In my head, I'm like, you think I'm going to a barbecue? Sir, you've seen me 10 months this month getting swabbed to my brain. You think yeah. I got fun plans? Uh-huh. Yeah, real fun plans to try and not kill everybody. I'll see you on Saturday if you're scheduled. Yeah. But and, and and yeah, let's let's just remind people in the beginning of the pandemic, those tests were no joke. So if you're ever wondering what it was like to floss your brain, you had the COVID sinus test that like literally went up there. It was not a pleasant experience, but it was what it was. And we were grateful for the tests that we had. And it, yeah, so you were in there. Yes. Have it dusting off the brain here, checking for COVID as well. And what happened from there? Yeah. Then weirdly enough, got some sort of infection that wasn't COVID. Maybe from the frequent brain swabbing. I don't know how. Like, maybe. What are you going to do this weekend? I'm going to put the flu right up in your cranium. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe from that. Yes, probably. Maybe. Kind of likely. And so you got sick. I got sick for like a month. And this weird thing happened where like I looked like I... Oh no, I did not trust me. I got every test on the sun. My eyes were swollen, nearly shut. Just everything was unwell. But that was like May 2020. And that kind of springboarded into the health OCD era, which I would like to say it's very important to me that I don't know, I should probably have a better idea of why health anxiety or as it is in the DSM, illness anxiety disorder isn't just. OCD with health themes, because let me tell you, for me, it's exactly the same. Yeah, OCD with health themes, it, it's just OCD. Right. And for how long have we heard about hypochondria, right? So it's something that goes way, way back. And it's a common like, yeah, they can be kind of a hypochondriac. But yeah, health themes, as you learn more about health OCD, really are a close match to hypochondria. I'm not even sure where an existing case of hypochondria wouldn't match. That's what I've genuinely been curious about is like, okay, you feel your heart racing and you think you're going to die. Or you feel this sensation in the area that how does that not go hand in hand with compulsions, right? Almost I, I it's the hard to imagine, like. Then you research MD is a fan favorite, right? Like uh-huh. symptom checker. Yep, symptom. I'll save you. If you're thinking of checking out WebMD and you haven't or your loved one hasn't, I'll save you the time that you can reclaim back and just tell you it's cancer. Or it's, it's going to be something fatal if it's not cancer. It's a rare disease that only 1% of the population in the last 100 years has had. That's probably what it is. That's, you know, those are the, those are the outcomes that we love getting from symptom checker. But yeah, so you, you started that era in health OCD. And so tell us a little bit more about that. And it wasn't to say people that she wasn't experiencing actual physiological issues. I mean, she could not, no matter how intrusive the thoughts are, go make my eyes puff up. They're going to swell. Like, obviously, she was having some physiological response to whatever was making her ill. But at the same time, the intrusive thought could mean, what if this is an indication of dot, dot, dot? And that's where it can really kind of take a turn with the intrusive thoughts. I think it's normal to have some anxiety when you're running through testing and whatnot, or you have different family histories of things to go 
this could be that. Yeah, it could be. Good thing you're getting it tested. And at the same time, with the intrusive thoughts and health anxiety, it is a relentless roller coaster of despair in terms of health. So you started to get chummy with health anxiety amidst COVID. And yeah, like you said, absolutely. There were what I like to call grains of truth. Like I was actually sick, but then also growing up, like when I was a toddler, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder mm-hmm. that went to remission in my teens. But like I was well versed in the healthcare system and trained, bless you, Lori, my mother, for being a good advocate for myself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give you Lori. We won't compare you to Carly, but you know, she gets, you know, a shout out for making me a good advocate. So you were a really good advocate. And anybody that has an autoimmune disorder will know that there is a, a not necessarily myth, but there's an omen out there that they like to run in twos. And if you have one, you might get another. If you have two, you might get more and all of that. So that's a, that's the whole like autoimmune community. I have an autoimmune, I'm celiac. And so I know how people can, I'm not just like hating on autoimmunes. I'm not hating on anybody, but yes. But what I would say is, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety. If you're like, if you join a Facebook group of an autoimmune people, buckle up, baby, because there's a lot of angst in store. But yeah, absolutely. So you had an autoimmune, it was in remission. Did it come back? Was that part of the fear or part of the reality during that health crisis? I think it was like, I think it was more so that that set the stage for me to be very aware from a very young age, like that you have to be alert and on the look for symptoms. And being a woman navigating the medical system where, you know, there's a lot of conversation about having your concerns dismissed uh-huh. being not taken seriously mm-hmm. and let's just say i sure as hell was not going to be dismissed right so right i was like that's or who i am i'm gonna get an answer one way or another even if that means in the next couple of months my whole world becomes figuring out how i'm gonna get an answer to something that may very well may not have an answer. Yeah. So you were, I'm sure, with a myriad of different specialists at that point, then trying to kind of check what, could it be this? Could it be that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, like I, it, it, at the very beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the specialists, if it was a non-essential service, that was getting kind of booked out in an appointment because a lot of people couldn't, they couldn't risk the the risk. But then there were a lot of long waiting lists for the specialists. So I'm sure that just started a whole thing of in terms of advocating for getting those appointments and for trying to figure out what was going on for you. So you were working through that well in your master's? Yep. Yep. I'm in the ball. Yeah. Luckily, I finished my, I mean, maybe not luckily because it just made my OC worse, but I finished my practicum hours with the line and then I could have kept working, like just working there. But OCD was just taking over my life very fast. Mm-hmm. So and I didn't know. Actually, that's the wild part is that I had zero concept, unlike back in 2016, that this was OCD. Right. And, and you know, Ali, I appreciate that you've said a couple of times about different things that you didn't know, because what is very true, especially when OCD is very active in your brain, is that mm-hmm. it is hard to have insight and you might be very high functioning like she was mentioning you might be a very bright person it doesn't matter the insight can be really poor around that and when you're dealing with different already medical diagnoses and whatnot 
going, well, no, this isn't a mind thing. This is, I'm feeling this physiological thing. There are these observable, measurable things that are medical side effects. These are things that I need to attend to. And so it can be very, very sneaky and subtle in the beginning because you're just trying to get the answer. You're just trying to get healthy so that you can be the best you possible, having no idea. It would be insulting if someone would say to you, like, I think that's just anxiety. And you'd be like, what, bitch? (laughs) You think this is just in my head? You're invalidating this. Have you seen my eyes in the next zip code here? You better take me seriously. And so absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So validly feeling the medical concerns, also validly experiencing the intrusive nature of OCD around the medical concerns. So where did it go from there? And yeah, no one in my world, like my husband, my parents, no one else even questioned either if it was OCD. I was dealing with a lot of legitimate medical like symptoms and things, and it expanded quickly. As yeah. it loves to do. Yeah. What started as one of it's an autoimmune disorder became, you know, and also, you know, when you're trying all these new medications and having side effects, yeah. it becomes easy to springboard onto a new thing. So oh, yeah. Starting a new medication, which I did in September mm-hmm. for palpitations and chest pain. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Loved obviously. it. Anxiety. That's like, you know, anxiety loves those traits as well. So I'm sure that was just a spitfire fun. And what do you do if some if you call your primary care doctor and say, hey, I'm having heart palpitations and chest pain. What should I do? Go to the ER. Yeah. Go to the ER. Uh-huh. So September, August, September 2020, that's when the new compulsion of choice popped up was going to the ER. Uh-huh. Just where COVID was probably just like, ah, uh, so intensely, like people are being bombarded by it. And yeah, I think that I think that's a really good point. Like you, you do need to take chest pain seriously. That could be a heart attack. It could be something fatal. But at the same time, it can be very common within high distress situations, anxiety, depression, OCD. Yes. So you went to the ER and they said you weren't dying. Yeah. Right. Maybe you're a day closer to dying each time. Right. They would not have said that to me. I would not know that well. So you're like, stop it. Who put you up to this? Anderson Cooper. The lover, you're like, please don't say mean things. But yeah, so there you are. You're now, you have a new ER of choice. Oh, yes. Yeah. Though, you know, I was eventually, it was like, oh, this one, like, I got to know all the metro area ERs pretty well. Yeah. Husband, bless his heart, the 0%. At least uh, now you have something you can tell the COVID tester. He's like, what, you, what are your plans? You're like, well, I'll probably go to the ER at least once. Right. Yeah. I actually remember in the thick of it. And so, yeah, that escalated very quickly where maybe it was like one, like at the beginning, it was like I went once and then two weeks later I went once. But then it snowballs, right? And any, there's so many layers to this of like the reassurance seeking in the medical system. Yes, they are, they are designed that if you are having those things, you need to act and you need to act fast. And that yeah. is this slogan of choice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You need to go to the ED and you need to go now. Because if you uh, don't. Because if you don't. You're dead. Yeah, right. you're dead. There you go. So you're going to the ER and OCD loves urgency. Like you're saying, it, it just feeds off of that. And so what Ellie's basically telling us is she met her deductible that year very quickly so now the good news is you can get other work done for whatever other illnesses pop up 
the last five ED visits of the of twenty twenty were on the house. Yeah, yeah. So good. And now you have a new. But you see, you have lost community. So now you have two community based on who's who's stabbed that night. But you know, and I say that we make in the OCD field. We like to make light of these situations a lot. But yeah, absolutely, it's very distressing. When you're going in there legitimately thinking, what if I could, what if I, I'm dying right now? And at any point did the ER, did anybody in there flag, maybe there's something more going on with this or were they? As far as the medical side, once and gosh, bless them. Yes. Shout out to you, one (laughs) ER doctor. But then they just gave me ammo that I rode with for months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I rose ranks as far as like, you know, going to the ED, getting my EKGs. I'm like, okay, these are coming back fine every single time. Then, you know, you got to get your chest scans, got to get what's next. And, you know, what was a heart thing? Like the concern shifted from the heart to strokes, blood clots to, you know, there was always some new theory I had. Uh Always. And it's... And then again, like these systems that are designed to cover themselves liability-wise, anytime you call seeking reassurance or just asking a question. They're like, you should come in. Yeah. Right? You call yes. any provider, even my therapist line, when, when people call me. Call 911 for immediate right. help. Yep. Or don't, but don't sue me. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what she's making a point of is, so a lot of, I mean, I have it on my voicemail too. We have it in our email about confidentiality and whatnot, but we, there's always kind of a, a basic harm statement in there that if you're at risk of hurting yourself or others, dial that one, go to the emergency room. And it's it's meant to be a protective and a liability thing because we would absolutely, just as I say at the beginning of this podcast, it's in my intro because it needs to be said each time, this isn't therapy, this is an assessment, this isn't a treatment. I may be a therapist, I may do this for a living, but that doesn't mean the content of this should guide your life. And so if we say that as a protective measure, but OCD does love to take that and run. And I would imagine too, you know, leaving an ER, there's usually, or any kind of hospital or doctor situation, there's a discharge instruction that if things should escalate or get worse, come back. So it's like a nice little thing to OCD because it's like, here we go. We write it done. <laughs> and they would say that every time. Yep. I was always like, okay, yeah, sounds good. Like, and if anything changes, don't hesitate to come back. And my OCD's like, don't worry. You're <laughs> like, I'm booked. I'm booked. Yep. Oh, OCD. OCD. So you ended up compulsively going to the ER. One doctor out of many, but yes, bless you, doctor, that had at least an intuition going, hmm, I wonder if something could be going on that's above the head. And we're not talking about a blood clot, but we're talking about something going on neurologically for you in terms of how you're processing all of this. So, yes. And, and it's hard, too, because, again, that's not their their field. And when you have viable medical things happening, they can comment on the medical things. So you feel validated in your following up of these different things. Every now yes. and then they'll find something random that had they not been poking around, they probably wouldn't know. Probably would have passed. But since you're in there and they're like, hey, this is happening. Another thing to freak you out about. So you were in the ER often. And she got to know the metro area. So you were building a web there, which you probably are. Because when you're working in crisis lines and 
meaning to at times 5150 people, which is a, a involuntary hold for people that are at risk for hurting themselves or others. You have to get kind of in the know with some of these different hospitals, too, to find beds that are open. There is a lot of different complicated linkage that has to happen for people to get that care they need, but it's important. And so from both sides, you were acutely aware from your work as well as your own health. So what happened next? Yeah. So rising the ranks, I mean, by December, 2020, OCD was my entire existence. Mm -hmm. I remember finishing my last paper. I graduated in December, 2020 with my MSW. I was literally like doing compulsions, like with the tabs open of deep diving on, you know, rare disease databases. I finished my master's and that gave me just even more time for compulsions. I wasn't working. I had finished my practicum. At this point, I think I had gotten an endoscopy done in December. I had gotten several x-rays. I actually just had gotten a heart monitor. Uh -huh. like a, a Holter yeah. monitor kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, there's a newer one that sticks on it. Not a Z-Pack. That's an antibiotic. It is. Great medication for a bitch at this point. Whenever I meet with a client, like in crisis especially, I'm like, uh -huh. okay, with your med list. And they're like, da -da. I'm like, oh, this one? Yeah. Yeah, I know. You get, in, you get in the know. Yeah, especially about all sorts of like different classes of medication. Oh, you're an acid reflux queen too? Great. Uh -huh. Yep, yep. And this treats that, but it creates that side effect, but that might be that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So you end up not on a Z-Pack, but some kind of heart monitor. Yep. Got all the things going. At this point in January 2021, I'm probably in the emergency room at least three days a week. Uh-huh. Which is wicked expensive. Very, very. Yeah. Yeah. And around this time, I started shooting off some emails to OCD therapists, not because I think this is OCD, but I'm like, well, before I, I die, maybe I should talk to somebody. Right? I'm like, well, I know this is something I've dealt with in the past. And maybe there's a way, maybe it can be helpful. And I will never forget meeting with my OCD outpatient therapist for uh -huh. the first time I meet down and looking her in the eye and saying, you know, I, I have Puro, so I have a, I have these thoughts that I don't have potions. Uh-huh. Bless her heart. I don't know how she can just start catching me. Uh-huh. I know I'm very trauma-informed, but... Yeah, it's like, let's talk more about that. I'm like, yeah. Like, looking She's back, like, I'm like, let's wait till we build a rapport and then yeah. we'll cackle because... No compulsions, right. Okay, wait. Well, yeah. Right. So the, this is a great opportunity to talk about Puro because we, we were referencing it earlier. Puro is a classification of OCD where theoretically you don't have compulsions. And so you just get the obsessive intrusive thoughts. The fact that you've researched those intrusive thoughts to the point of discovering that your Puro would in and of itself be a compulsion that you were researching it. But right. a lot of I think especially newbies to OCD diagnosis that because it's not super obvious. And as we said, the insight is not things just aren't clear in hindsight. Then if it's 2020, we can go, well, well sure. Look, just look at it back, you know, but pure. Oh, and I don't know, because for myself, when I first realized OCD, I knew I had anxiety my whole life and I, I was a pretty effective coper with it in my humble opinion. 
But when I realized maybe I'm having some OCD, I researched it and I came across Puro and I was like, yeah, that that sounds like me. And in retrospect, I kind of wonder if that felt like less shaming to me, less, less worrisome to me, or if it was even that concept. And I was a therapist. I had been for, for decades at that point. I wondered, like, could it just be that I'm having some of these intrusive thoughts now, not realizing that the fact that I've had anxiety my whole life and that it's stuck around and it has taken many different shapes and morphed through different areas and times of my life, absolutely was it there. But I didn't see it as that. And so I think, I think, you know, the more that I've gotten to know OCD, the more I see it in most anxiety disorders. I'm like, "Eh, it's OCD. But but Pure O is often kind of touted by someone that A, has been dealing with OCD for a really long time. And at this point, they're just to the O's, apparently. <laughs> or, you know, O's for obsession or kind of new to it. And they kind of really identify with this. I don't know. For me, it was an entry level little like, I'm not like checking locks. And I'm right. not doing some of those. I don't wash my hands excessively. So I'm probably Pure O. But the mental compulsions are still compulsions and usually manifest and lead to, whether it's researching or whatever, more than just kind of what's going on. We can examine it and find those other compulsions as well. So you talked with your therapist. You had found somebody amidst all your ER visits started meeting with them on Zoom, which was very typical during the pandemic to start telehealth because a lot of people either had closed offices or closed lobbies or health concerns. And so you met with her. And what happened next? Queen, you definitely got some compulsions. She said it just like that. <laughs> said it like Carly. Carly would have been like, face your compulsion. <laughs> All you do, your whole life is a compulsion. Oh, only there. But yeah, I I mean, pure O is one of those things where it's like, I consider it like, you know how they call it a gateway drug, right? Like it's a gateway term. Uh-huh. Or it opens the floodgates for people to be like, no, that you go through the gate, you're like, oh, here I am. And eventually it's like, you have OCD. Like, pure O is like, it's OCD, right? It is, it, it's OCD. OCD is OCD is OCD. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think there's something about either I've worked on this so hard and I believe that I've achieved this level of like, that's not still extremely distressing, even if you're just dealing with intrusive thoughts and flooded by right. them. And in treatment and recovery, it doesn't mean you're not having intrusive thoughts or you're just a person with a brain. Intrusive thoughts happen. But at the same time, there's a difference between going, oh, I know that is an intrusive thought moving on because I'm going to do other things with my life and getting kind of caught in that. But I, I like that the gateway. Yeah, I think that intro to OCD 101, like, yeah, I might dabble in OCD a little bit. That's a little bit of a fit, but I'm pulse, right? Right. It's all not about the level of distress or acuity. It all has, it all boils down to like, the media slash at-large portrayal of OCD mm-hmm. and that people just seem to just absolutely miss the connection between their OCD and the actual diagnosis because external compulsions are so highlighted and mental compulsions. And even for practitioners, 
there's been some questions pop up of does this person have GAD or do they have OCD? Because rumination is yeah. a favorite impulsion of my OCD. Right. But also like also a go-to for having generalized anxiety disorder. So how do you tease that apart? Right. It doesn't matter as long as you're actually doing like evidence-based treatments, right? Sure. But you know, it, yes and no though, because forget. And so GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, was probably one of my like token diagnoses that I would prescribe. And I ended up having a lot of clients that I felt like I did dynamic work with, psychodynamic work with their anxiety. But you look at things like some of the CBT interventions that we've talked about, about thought stopping, you know, Ellie referenced earlier, kind of visualizing the stop sign in her mind. That's a, that's a CBT technique that would be used for anxiety. And it's not helpful to just avoid the thought or try to stop the thought. It's one thing if you stop thoughts because you say this is just a thought and you're able to kind of dismantle it in that way. But if you're like, no, I have to stop it, even though I'm afraid it might be true, which I think happens again. And OCD, I don't know. Like I, At this point, I'm starting to go like, it's not the other anxiety disorders don't exist. But I think I think back and a lot of clients that and I had I had self-diagnosed myself with cat and I would tell my therapist, as we all are so great. If you're a therapist going into a therapist, you're like, here's the deal with me. And they're like, oh, great. okay." But I had already self-diagnosed myself with cat and I just feel like, yeah, it's the tip of the iceberg. You go a little bit deeper and the more you know and learn about OCD, you go. I don't know if GAD is really as common as we think, but that's a whole little GAD spinoff. So what I will say is, yeah, that it, it can be, it can get tricky. So what happened from there? So then, I mean, at this point, this was January, February 2021, and OCD was impacting every level of my functioning. Mm-hmm. My sleep, I was waking up in the middle of the night basically having panic attacks. In fact, you know, like that scene, it's the shining with the twin girls in the hallway. The twin girls in my hallway, they would be like panic disorder and health anxiety slash OCD, where they're just like ping-ponging off of each other. You wake up having a panic attack, health anxiety slash OCD latches onto it, and then the compulsions take over. So right, it was, it's health distress. Yeah. I, so I wasn't sleeping. I was waking up and basically compulsively doing mindfulness techniques through the night to try to eliminate any feelings of distress. So, you know, I'd just be doing yoga in pitch black or deep breathing, looking up any new breathing exercises through the night. All those apps and masks. Yeah, there's so many apps. There's an app for that. Yeah. So now we're sprinkling. We've got distress at an all-time high. And uh, and I'm not even sure exactly where Ali's going with this, but I do want to note the insomnia because insomnia is quite the cocktail chaser here for any kind of mental health thing or, you know, for a little physical health things too. If you're not getting adequate and proper sleep, it can affect your, your health in so many ways. But insomnia, that's kindling for a brewing fire. So I can imagine adding insomnia into this. I can kind of imagine where this might be headed. So you're not sleeping, you're compulsing through the night. What happened next? My diet is stripped down to nothing except for boiled chicken because one of them, I've developed a new allergy. I can't drink any caffeine because heart palpitations, chocolate, 
that has caffeine. Um, basically, I, you know, any kind of food that elicits any sort of experience could create acid reflux, anything spicy or even a tinge of spice. I mean, even down to like marinara, right? Right. I can't eat anything acidic-y. Like it's all kind of boiling down to gotta avoid heart palpitations, avoid allergies, avoid acid reflux, avoid sugar because, you know, that can make you feel more anxious if you have a sugar high, right? Boil down to you know, boiled chicken and rice and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't eating. I was scared to walk outside the house, go anywhere alone. I wasn't driving because also, yeah, hand in hands with harm and health is like, oh, what if I'm driving and I have a heart attack and crash? Right. And then you might kill somebody or yourself. What if somebody right. important to you, like your husband or somebody is in the car? Do you have, I don't know if you have children. Do you have children? No. Okay. Because I, I know for me, I had a similar thing with health anxiety. And if one of my children was in the car, it was like even more because I was like, not that I don't want to kill anybody. But if it was my child and then I'm really a monster. Right. And so absolutely. Yeah. You, you have that intensifying. Yeah. And like also it's spread at this point to like also elements of like mental health OCD of what if I experienced a dissociative episode and forget where I am and do something to hurt myself or hurt someone else or I'm driving and dissociate. That was a huge one for me that to this day, it's like this hero. Almost I experience amnesia on the road and forget what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And so I wasn't driving. I couldn't even, in fact, like at the very, right before I went to residential, it was like even just walking down the street, the fear of what if I dissociate, only walking on roads where I knew it was busy enough that if I had a medical episode and felt, I was thinking that through. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Always the planner. <laughs> and watch TV because my anxiety is so high, I couldn't focus without sending me into a panic attack, let alone, you know, trying to dabble with my old favorites like Grey's Anatomy as this. As if, mm-hmm. like, I would not, I couldn't even watch, like, if a medication commercial came on, you know, where they're like, you know, this is body vans, blah, blah, blah. You're like, screw it, screw my ADHD, screw everything. Or, you know, if someone was breathing heavily on a TV show. Uh-huh. Nope. uh-huh. So you started to have even more panic about just doing your basic activities, the daily functioning, because what if something bad could happen to you or somebody else um and that fear of dissociating or that amnesia or not knowing like we we're already kind of seeing the blurred line now with our reality testing uh which is so common i find when insomnia is is topping all of that off uh and so you you are basically afraid to do much of anything at this point Yeah. yeah And so what led you then, because you referenced going to residential, and I think this is an important point to to talk about, because whether it's going to the ER for a psychiatric issue or going into a higher level of care of intensive outpatient or even residential, like, I think that it's a piece that, A, not a ton of resources exist around the world, let alone the country. And, you know, getting into a higher level of care or figuring out you need that or having a traumatic experience in higher level of care can be hard. So what led to you getting into residential? Yeah, I mean, I started talking to my therapist and I'm just like, oh, gosh, like this is like, you know, my OCD like on the scale was in the extreme zone. 
without a shadow of a doubt. And so I was like, I, I know I could do the workout patient, but it would take so long and it would be like, it's just so widespread at this point that I really feel like I need more support. So I reached out to McLean in Houston and they're like, yes, Queen, come on down. Thank you for that. Houston, we have a problem. And next week, we're going to explore how Allie getting to Houston with a whole lot of sweat, tears, and pharmaceuticals led to her being able to reclaim her life, building a sisterhood thicker than blood, and has led to advocacy and raising awareness along with the helping of hope. We'll talk about her social media awareness and collaboration on Bad Bitches Bad Anxiety, which you guys, I kid you not. It's an Instagram account that I love, and it is memeing OCD right up, and it's hilarious. And as I was telling Allie before we started recording, I was just thinking, I really need to reach out to these content creators because I love the work that they're doing. And so just imagine how thrilled I was when I realized Allie was one half of this magic combo. So we'll talk more about all of that next week and next year as it happens because that will be our first episode of the new year. And I love that, because we get to start the new year off with an empowering leap into reality, the here and now, of Allie and so many warriors like her. We get to know that while valid and worthy are our stories of how we got to some of our gravest spaces, those moments, they don't define us. So my challenge for you all this week as we wrap up another year is to reflect on what were some of those hard, most tender moments for you. I think often we avoid or hesitate to reflect on these factors because it's painful, it can feel scary, and often we may have even experienced some of it as traumatic. But if you can, write down or type in a note app on your phone what some of these daunting lows were or are even. Maybe there's still very real, very tangible struggle for you in the here and now. But I want to challenge you to do this. And why? Because I want us to honor that all of this was felt. In some circumstances, it was experienced. In some moments, it tortured or haunted you, me, your family, our marriages, your existence. And then I want you to look in the mirror. Or turn on your phone so you can meet your own gaze and say this. And I'm still here. Say it again. And I'm still here. Say it louder. And I'm still here. Because no matter how hard, how scary, how convincing, how absorbing, how difficult this year has been, you are still here. And I'm still here. And Allie, she's still here. And we, we're not alone. So good job, warrior. You've been through battle, and you're still here. And I, well, I'm so glad because our family wouldn't be the same without you. So I'll see you in the new year, fam. And hey, I'll save a seat for you next to me right here. And we can cheer Ellie on 
because her metamorphosis, it's a hope bringer. And she's still here too. So I'll see you next year, fam. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Allie G keeping it real with me. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.